Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Force Podcast. Of course, it's your host, Mike G. Let's get into some of the current events. If you haven't seen it already, Tulsi Gabbard has disaffected from the Democratic Party. I'm not surprised. I don't think anybody who knows Tulsi or who watches her social media is surprised. As a congresswoman from Hawaii who ran for president of the United States, who was treated very distastefully by the Democratic Party, not surprised that she's disaffected. Surprised that she's actually an independent and not a Republican. Look, a lot of people who on the outside want to make profound change on the inside, when they become a politician, they start to see the degree at which things are corrupt. I mean, when you have politicians who are making $100 million plus and net worth by being a career politician who gets paid a couple hundred thousand dollars a year at best, man, seems pretty corrupt. I tell the story often about me being a military guy and not able to moonlight in any way. I mean, when I was a young infantryman, I had a part-time job as a mechanic for Honda, and I did that under the table, and I never said anything. Because if I did, I would get kicked out of the military because I was double-dipping my minimum wage salary being a mechanic, changing oils at a Honda dealership. When I was in third group, I tried to bounce at local bars and clubs just to make extra money on the side. And if I got caught doing that, I would get in trouble. But if you're a politician and you stock trade, you can make millions of dollars and nothing happens. So a definite issue that I'm seeing is guys and gals who decide to be politicians who say, I'm going to profoundly make change. And then they get there and they don't really do anything. But Tulsi seems a little different. I like Tulsi. She's a military woman. She's from Hawaii. She's done a lot in her life through her experiences. And she seems very logical and rational about all the things she's saying. So I don't know. Um, I, I think it's pretty profound news. I think the last time we talked, they were trying to figure out what this Cat 4 hurricane, Hurricane Ian, was doing to the state of Florida. And guys, it's done a lot. I mean, it's destroyed some towns in Florida that don't exist at all anymore. I mean, Fort Myers got hit really hard. If you look at the pattern of the storm and the way that it churned off the uh, Gulf Coast side of Florida, it really destroyed people's lives, killed uh, a lot of people. There's a lot of people missing and created probably the biggest natural disaster in Florida history. Um, Natural disasters are here to stay. This isn't something that's new, but overall, in the overall response, Governor DeSantis has seemed to have his shit together. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people and a lot of circumstances, including Hurricane Katrina, the list goes on. I have many examples of things not going right and disaster preparedness and response. Seems like they're doing a decent job. Although I have an employee that works for me, Ricky, who's in marketing, her family was really shook by the storm. I mean, their house was destroyed. Ricky's telling me that they can't get power. They can't get a reception. They can't get supplies because the remote location, which is an island off the Gulf Coast side, it's devastating. American contingency with the groups in Florida, I believe 500 plus people that are members that live in Florida, not directly impacted, but certainly lending a helping hand. Big shout out to AmericanContingency.com and our community members who are going out there and lending that hand. It's, it's a tragic circumstance, but something that we have to do is leave politics aside 
and rally together. Um, there is a popular video that I was going to do a reacts to. I'll talk about it here. But the reacts video was stemming around the reaction that I had of a police officer, and I'm, I'm going to hack this. I believe it was Arizona, who responded to a, a kid eating a cheeseburger in his car, and he opened the door. The kid was literally eating a cheeseburger, and the kid, spooked by him opening the door, literally took off, and the officer broke contact and opened fired on the kid. And I believe that young man is in critical condition. Maybe even uh, he's in a coma. His life is not guaranteed at this point. In that circumstance, I didn't want to do react because it was kind of distasteful, I think, at the time because he's still fighting for his life. And it just seems all wrong. Guys, look, law enforcement officers make mistakes. This officer was charged for assault based on the actions that he took. If this kid dies, uh, he might be facing manslaughter or, or maybe even murder. There's a right way and a wrong way. I think police officers are in a tough position, period. Uh, I just got done training Redland SWAT, and they're a great SWAT team, a whole bunch of motivated guys, but they're the exception. A lot of officers across the country don't have a lot of training, and they're just doing their best. And I, I hate to see things like that because it just reinforces some of the issues that we talk about, including the lack of training. Sheepdog response, Phil Craft survival, a lot of the uh, companies in our circle that are tactical companies are doing our best to train law enforcement officers free of charge in some cases because these guys don't have the budget and educating and training law enforcement officers as much as we can. I think that's our responsibility as business owners, but as somebody who has an experience in the military, but who is not an expert military trainer. I train military SWAT teams for specific things, but there's a lot more that uh, officers need to be educated on besides shooting a gun. I mean, situational awareness, decision-making, physical contact and combatives, those things are probably more important than just focused on gunfighting. But the more that we can train them, the better off that will be. I also did a electric vehicle piece of content, and I talked about this a little bit um, before, but uh, I have better context now in, in conversing about it. But remember, electric vehicles, keep an open mind about electric vehicles. Let me just say that. Uh, I saw my buddy Scott Brady talking about electric vehicles on one of his posts because he's testing a Rivian, and he's an industry expert if you don't know Scott Brady, but uh, he owns Overland Journal. And those guys and their amazing team do a lot of press releases and a lot of testing and research and development, testing and evaluation of new vehicles, including the Rivian, which has a lot of bugs they're working out. I think every EV does. But there's a lot of also misinformation and education centered around vehicles themselves and what electric vehicles are. Now, you would be surprised if I told you that the first hybrid vehicles that use battery power and gasoline stem from the early 1900s. In fact, Ferdinand Porsche made one of the first hybrid vehicles ever. This concept's not new, guys. I mean, there's a whole bunch of examples of both electric power or battery powered things that also have gas operation. I remember weed whacking my grandma's yard when I was a youngin with an electric weed whacker, right? There's a, I don't know if they caught on. This is when I was a kid. There's electric lawnmowers. I, I think that's crazy. Just to mow the lawn with a cord dangling behind you, but it's a thing. So 
one of the things that I've educated myself on in electric vehicles is why they would be beneficial for you in diversifying your preparedness portfolio. Uh, let's just say you're, you're looking at preparedness like me as a lifestyle. If you are, then you'd never close yourself off to any ideas about diversifying or building redundant systems because diversity is good. That's how you're going to survive. You can't put all your eggs in one basket or you're bound to fail. So one, 1% of the country uses electric vehicles, right? That's a lot of vehicles. 1% of uh, whatever the stat is, 360 million people. That's a lot of vehicles. That's a lot of vehicles in this country. When we look at 1% of the vehicles, when I talk and advocate for the potential use of electric vehicles, let me also state that no electric vehicle companies pay me, right? I did some content, just a short clip on the Ford Lightning, an American company, and a whole bunch of people get upset about it, which I, I honestly don't get, but I mean, I get the internet. I just don't get overreacting to a reel that was like 30 seconds long without context, not understanding what you're even talking about. Some people think the idea of an electric vehicle is stupid because it doesn't make you better prepared. Well, let me bring up some things that I think will help you understand my position with electric vehicles or anything. One, I live in Heber City, Utah. Like many people in small town America, where you don't live in a city like Salt Lake City, which isn't a massive town. I mean, it's 1.2 million and up. It's not like Dallas-Fort Worth, where it's 7.6 million, or the uh, Los Angeles metro area, 11 million plus in the surrounding area. I'm talking about 16,000 people in my town. 13,000 people in my small town of 16,000 people, their power, including mine, are provided by Heber Light or Heber City and Light. Heber City Power Company, let's just call it Heber City Power Company, gets their power provided by a private company, a private entity from Lake Jordanelle that uses hydroelectric technology processes. It's using water to push through and generate power that's putting that power in, in reserve and transporting it to 13,000 people. I pay a bill, it goes to a private company, and that's how it was set up. It was built in the early, uh, I believe in the early 90s, Lake Jordanelle was built as a dam, uh, as a reservoir, but also there's a hydroelectric dam or water system. So that is very important to understand because one, most of the power in the country is privately owned. In fact, 80% of power provided in the country is privately owned. Found a neat statistic that said only about 11%, and the bandwidth is 11 to 20%, according to the statistics I just presented. But according to this statistic, about 11% is owned by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. That's government owned. And the reason it's government owned is because the electricity that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is providing, which is mostly uh, hydro, is pumping that water to federal buildings. So why is that important? Well, it's important because if right now I use my town as a case study, I would say right now I have four gas stations in my town. There could be five, maybe six. I, I think it's about four. There's one down on the corner there's one down by the Smith's uh, grocery store. There's another one across the street. That's three. I think there's the one on the right heading into town. Three or four gas stations. 
if you have 13 to 16, let's just call it 16,000 because that's the general, that's the population driving Americans who own homes. That's 13,000 according to Heber City. Let's say it's 13,000. 13,000 people, because it's the household, trying to get gas from three to four gas stations. What do you think would happen really fast? Well, we know it would happen because as a case study, it happens every time there's a natural disaster in this country. All the gas stations run out of gas. Because most natural disasters affect the roadways, the standard supply chain of tractor trailers, truck drivers providing you the supply of gas to the gas stations don't exist. Now, there's three oil refineries. Actually, there's five total oil refineries north of Salt Lake City. Most of the gas they provide in the oil refinery is distributed throughout Utah. So we don't have to cross the Rockies to get our gas from North Dakota. A lot of the gas that comes from the, uh, uh, into the West, into Wyoming, into the, the region comes from North Dakota, and it also comes from Texas. So when you think about physical gas that's moving to 87 to 93 grade and diesel delivered to your grocery store, how quick will that be gone? Well, if the hydroelectric dam that's down the street in Lake Jordanel wasn't affected and I could still power my house, then you could see why having both a gas vehicle and electric vehicle could be advantageous. Uh, just like I say with mobility, if you have a $200,000 mobility rig that's built out, it's a Ford Raptor with every widget, and it has a quarter tank of gas, well, the $200,000 vehicle is a paperweight. The quarter tank of gas is your actual capability. So I want you to think for a second. I have a lot of vehicles. Most of them are company-owned, but let's just say I have five vehicles sitting in my front yard, my trucks, my cars, my Jeep. Well, if I don't have gas to go fill up those vehicles, what am I going to be able to do logistically to resupply my family? Well, if I don't have a smart homestead setup, I really can't do a lot. So if you have power running to your home, oh, if you have a 17 kilowatt Generac generator that is fed by propane because you have a 500 gallon propane tank feeding that generator, well, man, guess what? You have power. And if you have power and you have a Ford Lightning, for example, you could hook up and charge that vehicle. Oh, and the Ford Lightning can charge a house inverting the power for three days. According to Ford's claim, not my claim, I'm going to test that claim, but according to Ford's claim. So I'm not saying, like I don't get behind electric vehicles because I'm thinking about protecting the environment. Look, if you ask my opinion on the environment, it's too complicated for me to come up with solutions. It's politicized, obviously. I stay out of the politics. I'm just looking at the practicality. If I lived in Salt Lake City or I had to commute 45 minutes down Provo Canyon to Salt Lake City, I would own an electric vehicle. Why? Because I spend a lot of money in gas and I would spend a lot more money in gas if I had to commute in my 13 miles per gallon Land Cruiser down to Salt Lake City. If I had an electric vehicle, which uses electric power, and I ran up and down the hill, it would save me a lot of money over time. I understand that the vehicle costs $75,000. If you could find one right now, that's a different argument or debate. But what I'm saying is there is a case and potential argument of why you would want one. Well, Mike, why don't you have one? 
I don't like electric vehicles. I have Porsches that are air-cooled from the 80s, and I love the way it sounds. I love the way it feels. I love the way it smells. I love gasoline because I could cross-reference it or cross-pollinate it into other vehicles, including UTVs. My Polaris, which I own a, a General, I could use that. My motorcycles, I have two. I have a Honda XL350, a 1978. I also have a Tenure T700 Yamaha. So man, for me, it's advantageous to have gas vehicles to cross-pollinate. Now, if shit hit the fan and I lost the ability to get gas because, I don't know, the, the surrounding states started shutting down their borders because of civil unrest. And the gas that's transported from major oil refineries or major distribution centers wasn't pumping that gas, there would be a gas shortage. Then what would you do? Well, you better have a bicycle. You better have man-powered capability to transport logistics. But also that comes at a cost because that fuel is calories. So you need food. There's always a cost-benefit analysis that's important to do here. I just want you to keep an open mind because I'm going to test it. Here's what I know the Ford Lightning and most electric vehicles be good at. Not, not necessarily Teslas. I'm on board this truck train because the truck has the clearance, which we recommend in a mobility platform anyways. You want clearance because you want the drivetrain to be up off the ground. Not necessarily the suspension separated from the wheel, right? That, that's one thing because that has to do with articulation and your ability to navigate obstacles. But I think more importantly, getting the differential, if you have one, getting the bottom of the vehicle cleared from the actual ground will help you clear obstacles, including curbs. Good luck trying to clear, I don't know, a big curb in a Tesla, in a Rivian, in a Ford Lightning all day long. I destroyed, I mean, the guys from um, Diamondback Covers let me use their Ford Lightning. They don't have a relationship with Ford. They just have a Ford Lightning because their Diamondback Covers go on the back of it. They let me rip it. And dude, I tore that thing up in the backcountry, drifting it like I was in a rally car, like I was in a pro rally car. And if I did that in a gasser, that thing would have been destroyed. Well, why didn't it destroy? Because it doesn't have standard parts like axles running through differentials like you would see in a vehicle. Uh, it doesn't have oil pans that are going to slap the bottom of the ground. And it's just more rugged. Let's just put it that way. So in a situation where you're, let's say you're in an urban environment and you need to bug out and you need to get off main avenues, main thoroughfares, main highways, then getting off-road by clearing obstacles and then getting off into terrain, you're going to be limited in a gas vehicle. I don't think the Rivian and the Ford Lightning have very many limitations. I mean, they're, they're amazing because you're basically in an all-wheel drive vehicle that has traction, 400 plus horsepower, a lot of torque that you don't see in normal vehicles. Um, so you're going to be able to get away. Now, your range is grossly affected, but how far are you going to go on gas? A couple hundred miles? I mean, if you're lucky like me, I have a 34-gallon tank in my truck and I get decent gas mileage, four, five, 600 miles at best. So am I advocating that an electric vehicle is the answer? No. I just want you to keep an open mind. Um, I wanted to focus this commute podcast on talking about a little bit of what I've released in my book, which will be coming out June 6, D-Day of 2023, called Prepared. It's my way of educating you on best practices and also 
the philosophy, but the practical application of how you implement preparedness in your life. Look, it would be scary. I get it, right? You're talking about preparedness, doomsday scenarios, but I want to kind of like have a conversation with rational human beings around the topic of preparedness. So I wanted to change the form factor. I mean, thank God being a random house believes in me and they allowed me to write this book with my writer, but it's just the availability for me to reach a broader audience by communicating and long form conversation. Uh, what preparedness is in my mind and how I think you could best set yourself up for success. The one of the things that I'm going to share with you today is the philosophy on how I break down physical preparedness by looking at you as an individual, your vehicle or mobility platform, and your home or your homestead. Now, a warning, I've talked about this often because this is one of the principles of preparedness that we teach. This is kind of the philosophy for Phil Craft Survival, my company. But I just want to reiterate this and make you understand that you could do this as well. This isn't something that you you have to have a military, first responder, tactical background to do. You could just be a normal human being trying to live your best life. I'll go over some of the best practices here. So one of the things that I did today is I just did a post on my social media feed on me holding this fanny pack. Now, this is the new new fanny pack. This is like the low-vis version which it's pretty thick right now, but you can see, I'm going to stand up real quick and show you uh, my waistline. It's not a lot of real estate. It doesn't take up a lot of space. I like this option. I designed this bag with some of my team because I wanted a sleeker option. And I wanted something that looks just a little bit more civilian-esque versus tactical, like the last fanny backpack we did, which we still will have out, which guys like but it has Velcro on it. It has Molly adapted pieces to it. It just looks a little bit more military. So I wanted like operate the outdoors, our Philcraft logo. And when you unzip it, um, I got a front pouch here. And sorry, if you're listening to me on a podcast, I do have a YouTube channel, the Mike Force podcast, where the reason I do this is because you could see what I'm doing if I'm talking about it. And I'm going to pull this stuff out real quick. I got a Cat 7 tourniquet in fluorescent orange. I'll describe that. Oh, my fishing license. Uh, I have a, this is a, what knife is this? This is my Strider knife, which has my call sign from my former life Shogun and Phil Kraft survival logo. It's a pretty cool knife. Big shout out to uh, Strider who makes amazing things. I have a Victor one vampire. This is a, uh, surefire light. I have a cat seven tourniquet, fluorescent orange. I have, uh, an operate the outdoors wallet, which is one of my favorite wallets made by Bexar. Bexer Goods, good leather company, but we make our Phil Craft wallets here. It says operate the outdoors on the inside. Yeah. Big shout out to Bexar. And what else I got in here? Oh, a Leatherman, which is a multi-tool. And some change, some coinage, right? So you can hold your keys with a lanyard, but I put VS-17 on the inside because I think VS-17 or fluorescent orange, which is used for signal in the military, is a great piece of equipment for um, near and far recognition or signal in a bad situation because this could be seen from the sky because it stands out. I mean, nature doesn't produce fluorescent orange, not yet, fluorescent orange colors uh, schemes. On the back side of this, I have, uh, we put a weatherproof or a kind of like a waterproof zipper because one, I want you to be all weather and I want you to operate the outdoors, but I also wanted this to be a little tighter and driving the zipper across because I didn't want you to accidentally open this zipper with a firearm in it. 
And I also put our Fieldcraft branded T-handle so you can grab it even in low light or under stress and just open it up and get access to your pistol. Now on the pistol side, you can see right here, um, this opens all the way, which in intently we wanted to have that option. Uh, we went back and forth with it, but we were pretty confident that we can get it accomplished with the sizing because I wanted it to be very sleek. Uh, and this has a Velcro adapter to cover the trigger guard. So in this one, I have my, this is a, a macro made by SIG. This is the 365 P365XL macro, which is a comped pistol that has a red dot, um, in this case, a, a Romeo. And it also has a 17 plus one round mag. This 17 round magazine is amazing because it's the same size as a 365XL, uh, but it's comped. And you could see it right here in the video. I mean, this is only an inch thick. That's very thin, very accessible, very compact, and fits inside this fanny pack. Now, this could fit a 365, a Glock 43, a Glock 19. But let me, let me talk about the breakdown of EDC. When I am looking at everyday carry, I am thinking about what I have on my physical person. Because your everyday carry... And what you have right now, let's just say I asked you what you had on your person right now. Think about it. Do you have a pistol? Most likely, a lot of listeners that listen to Mike Force have pistols. But what else do you have? Do you have the ability to treat yourself or your family in the worst case scenario? We're talking the worst case. Uh, for a traumatic bleed, do you have a, a tourniquet? Do you have a stop the bleed? kit, including combat gauze? Do you have a compression bandage? Do you have nitrile gloves? Your kit or what you have on your person is an indication of your capability. Because let me give an example. You could be fully capable because you're trained on every piece of equipment. But if you don't have the equipment, if you don't understand the principle behind equipment, like if you don't understand the principle behind a tourniquet and how it works by compressing or stopping the bleed by uh, providing pressure, 360 degrees, equal pressures across an extremity, then you don't understand how you could potentially use something else besides a tourniquet if you didn't have the tourniquet, like your belt, like a piece of clothing, like a stick and a cravat, which is the first tourniquet I grew up uh, with in the military. So it's important not only to look at yourself and what you carry as your capability, but you could increase your capability with more space or capacity. So if you have a backpack, the reason I carry a fanny pack is because I can increase, I'm a dad, one, I mean, DILF's rule, uh, hashtag DILF. I am a fan of my kids, but I also know I need to carry a little bit more equipment for myself and my kids. So I'm going to carry a fanny pack. I might even carry a sling bag. I might even carry, which I do, an Emerald Stock backpack when I'm out and about, if I go to the zoo with my kids, I have a full stop the bleed kit for them, multiple tourniquets, as well as a more robust setup for personal security. Guys, I might even have a 300 blackout folded inside of my backpack, depending on where I'm going. If I'm going to a place where there's a lot of people, potentially where there's danger because it's next to a city, I'm bringing my diaper bag and I'm going to have the ability to react and respond and security, but also first aid to take care of my family. Now, a lot of people go, well, that's extreme. I think it's extreme not to do that. How about, how about that opinion? Why would you not seek the tactical advantage if it doesn't inconvenient you and it's moral and ethical? 
Like, I don't understand. Like, people are like, well, why would you use night vision in your house for personal security? That's dumb. Really? Because if you had night vision and you were going to go toe-to-toe and go to war with somebody who's breaking in your house, would you not want an infrared laser-mounted IR source to your gun? That's obviously zeroed. Why would you not want the tactical advantage? So with more capacity and more space, you have more capability. So this is a tourniquet, and I chose fluorescent orange or VS-17. Let me tell you why I think this is uh, important, because people go, that's a training tourniquet. No, it's not. Universally, blue is for training. This is just a bright tourniquet. The reason I think it's advantageous on your person to carry something like this, and even in your vehicle, is if I had to, because I was in a bad situation, and I had to tell somebody to get the tourniquet for me, if I said, go get the fluorescent orange thing out of my bag, out of my vehicle, then this is fluorescent orange, and this is more accessible, then, hey, go get the tourniquet. And the person goes, what's a tourniquet? It's the thing, it's the black thing that looks, there's a whole bunch of black things. I could vector them in if I need support by using this. And it's also very identifiable because we don't wear, I mean, unless you uh, wear VS-17 clothing, this is going to stand out contrasting against your clothing like me who wears like earth colored clothes. This is going to stand out a little bit more and I want to identify, I'm not trying to hide. I'm not in a tactical scenario. Likely, I'm in a scenario where I want people to know where this tourniquet's applied, and I want them to be able to find it. But if this tourniquet is on your person, like in your fanny pack, then what would be the extension of your capability? Well, in your vehicle, your mobility rig, it would be a more upgraded solution because you have more space. So if you have four extremities and you have three members of your family, you would have a minimum of 12 tourniquets for a mass casualty. Now, a lot of people don't go out and buy $30 tourniquets times 12, but you see where I'm going with this. Each level up from your person or you as an individual, going from your waistband to a fanny pack to a sling bag to a backpack to whatever, to a vehicle where it's your vehicle, it's in your sports car, your van, your sprinter, you're going to upgrade along the way. Here are a couple principles to follow. One, in EDC and mobility, you need ready access. That's why I carry a tourniquet on my person, because if I'm bleeding out of my leg, I don't want to go, hey, can somebody run to my vehicle and get my tourniquet? If I'm laying in the fetal and bleeding out of my uh, femoral artery, I need to have access to it now. Same with security. We know that. Well, Mike, why would you carry an everyday carry pistol inside the waistband or inside of a fanny pack? Well, I think it's important to clarify that there is a difference between an imminent threat, an immediate threat. An imminent threat is the likelihood of threat, but also the luxury of time. An immediate threat is there is no time. You have a person pointing a gun at you. So let's say you're in a situation where you're faced with somebody pointing a gun at you. If a gun is in your waistband, in a holster, as it should be, a Philcraft holster preferably, in a holster in your waistband, appendix carried, underneath your shirt, I say to the same guys who go, I would never carry a pistol in a fanny pack. It's too slow. Then just like you practiced and rehearsed working through the reps and dry practice with your inside the waistband holster, why would you not do the same with fanny packs? I could reliably draw this pistol just as fast as I can from inside the waistband, but that takes practice. Now, I use staging like I do with um, 
inside the waistband. Let me give you an example of staging. Okay, what I just did was I grabbed the bottom of my shirt and I just lifted it up. That's staging, right? If I'm staging my hands, just like uh, I'm going for a right-handed draw into a waistband that's appendix carried, I'm trying to access the backstrap of that pistol, my support hand pulls away the clothing and material of the shirt. So I could do the same thing with my fanny pack, where I could literally stage my hand on top of the fanny pack with the, that's why I like the zipper setup right here, where this zipper setup has this in between my fingers, because it's, if you guys are listening to this, I'll try to make sense of this. It's a T zipper handle where it could fit in between your fingers. So if I'm sitting staged like this, and I have my hand on top, I could literally rip this open like I'm accessing the material or moving the material of my shirt out of the way, grab the pistol with the same pistol grip that I grab inside the waistband and pull the pistol out safely. So it doesn't necessarily slow you down. Now you can get more robust, you can get a backpack and it's gonna be more difficult to access. But I would say most of the circumstances we're in, we sense or there, there are behavioral indications that something's about to kick off. So I might be in a situation where I'm in a gas station at two in the morning. Well, I'm going to be staged. I'm not pumping gas at two in the morning in Chicago and not thinking about reacting to a potential imminent threat that might turn immediate, right? Situational awareness, head on a swivel, being conscious, being focused, staging my hands to excess the pistol. All those things keep them in mind because principally I want ready access to everything I have as soon as I can. So if I evolve the tourniquet into the mobility platform, then I would look at our visor panel from Philcraft. I would look at our panel pack. It doesn't have to be our stuff. Whatever you have, do that. But what I see people do is like they take a tourniquet and they put it in their glove box. If you are driving by yourself and you flip upside down, which I've actually seen flip the vehicles, you know what happens? The first thing that happens in a vehicle that flips upside down the glove box comes open and all the contents go into the back of the vehicle. They're being churned and tossed and turned out and they're not accessible. So if I have a tourniquet, it needs to be in a holder. People are like, well, why would you put a tourniquet in a holder? Just use the tourniquet. Well, where the hell are you going to put a tourniquet on a visor or readily accessible in your vehicle? Even on your belt, you're going to rubber band it to your belt? Like, I get it, guys. I've had special operations guys go, we use rubber bands for years. It doesn't mean it was right. <laughs> Just because we use rubber bands for years and you literally were able to pull your tourniquet off and throw it in the trash and your medic gave you a new one doesn't mean it was the right way to carry a tourniquet. A tourniquet is a consumer option for civilians. They could buy them for 30 bucks, whatever tourniquet's going for now. You buy it for 30 bucks, but you want to take care of it. So having a tourniquet holder and a visor and you grab it because you're flipped upside down, it's still adhered. The general rule is have it somewhere secure, which is key. But also, I want to expand and evolve the quantity and the capability. If you have one tourniquet inside your vehicle, you are dead wrong. Why? If you have a family or somebody you love that drives with you, what are you going to weigh? You're bleeding out from your femoral. She's bleeding out from her femoral and a fractured arm that's bleeding. Uh, who's, who gets the tourniquet? Why not just invest in having multiple tourniquets in an aid bag? Like have a robust setup. Uh, here's what I recommend. Have the visor panel. And look, guys, I'm, I'm selling Philcraft stuff. 
I'm pitching it because I believe in it because it works. I mean, I, d- I didn't develop it not to work. It's been available for years. But let me give you uh, the breakdown of what we use. But understand, I don't care if you rubber band it to your visor. As long as you have something, that's what matters the most. So our visor panel, we have the ability to get Velcro adapted pouches that have first aid equipment, which is our basic hemorrhage stop the bleed kit, and a tourniquet. That's one. Two, have a panel pack. Take a backpack and attach it to the headrest and let it float on the back of the seat. Or we use the 20 liter because our 20 liter has a integrated first aid and survival kit that Velcro attaches to the flap. You could have that by your passenger's feet on the passenger floor or have it behind the center console. Have a backpack or a 20 or 40 liter that we sell and have it behind the center console with all your life-saving equipment and maybe the upgrade of your security circumstance. Like I recommend 300 Blackout for inside the vehicle because 300 Blackout has the appropriate terminal ballistic effects to punch through glass from inside through the windshield and hit the target. Your 9mm pistol does not have that. You put a steel target out in front of your vehicle and you shoot one round through your windshield, it will go high off the target and it won't impact it. So I want you to have readily accessible first aid, survival, and security, most certainly, both in EDC and inside the vehicle. The last component to this is homestead. Oh man, why would you not have a, an aid station at, at home? Please think about physical security, but please think about the robust nature of the space you have and the capability you bear by having more capability through equipment uh, and learning that equipment, obviously, inside your home. So have an aid station, have uh, antibiotics, have overstock of gauze, of coagulant saturated gauze like combat gauze have compression bandage, have multiple sets of it because you're looking to sustain yourself in your home. A lot of people look at home defense and they think, well, instantly I'm going to go to a pistol. I choose a pistol because I know the layout of my house. I don't have long shots to potentially take. But if I had a security circumstance that was outside in my backyard, I wouldn't pick up the pistol. I pick up a rifle, a carbine, right? So again, it all has to do with capacity. Each level up from person to family to vehicle to multiple family vehicles to homestead to the extended range of your house and your grandma's house, your mom's house. Please expand your capability by utilizing the capacity that you likely already have. Here's one promise to you. I'm looking right now for a Honda Civic. I want a cheap Honda Civic. I talk about it often and I grew up with Hondas because it's crazy because the Honda Civic used market is through the roof. I want to get a Honda Civic and I want to show you how to set it up both in the wheels, the recommendations that we recommend for uh, off-road vehicles, but I'm going to use a front-wheel drive Civic, kitting it out with the appropriate levels of preparedness and making sure that you use that as an example of how prepared you could be. Like you don't have an overland extended fuel tank in your vehicle. That's fine. Use a gas can. What do you mean a gas can? Yes, use a gas can. Um, you have a lawnmower. You likely have a, a reserve gas can. They actually re- make plastic ones that are flat packable, that are really accessible, that you could put in the back of your truck. Well, that seems unsafe. You're driving a rolling gas tank. Put the gas in the back 
Fire and forget. It's in your trunk. You don't have to worry about it. It's separated by a compartment. Um, yes, if you roll over and and it's catastrophic, it's going to come out. But so is the gas in your gas tank that you're driving, right? A gas can or a gas plastic gas container is not going to magically break apart in a rollover or an accident. Those things are pretty robust. Why is that important? Because if you have a 15-gallon tank and you get 30, 40, sometimes 50 miles per gallon in your car, then you just extended your range by adding a 5, 10, or 15-gallon uh, additional fuel cell. Is that affordable? Yes. Is it uh, increasing your capability? Yes. And you don't have to have a $100,000 rig to prove that. You don't have to spend $5,000 on an extended fuel tank to prove that. I'm going to do that content really soon. Guys, November Resilience. Right now, November 4th through 8th, we have a couple more slots left. I'll be teaching a resilience course up in Evanston, Wyoming at a private ranch. All-inclusive. Come out and join me. If you're interested, it's at PhilCraftSurvival.com. Also, hopefully in the links in the profile. If not, just go to PhilCraftSurvival.com and put in resilience. Uh, also, go to AmericanContingency.com for all your community needs and building up your community because you're going to need it. You are an asset, I promise you. If you think you're a liability, you probably have a skill set you never thought about. Maybe you're just good for morale. I don't know. Find a, a skill set, hone in on it, and build your group and build your community because we'll need it for the future. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. It's the perfect commuting podcast because it's at 45 minutes. Until next time, peace out, guys. Tip of the spear